HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. America, from border to border, coast to coast, and all the ships at sea. Streaming live from the County of Kings, Brooklyn, New York City, on the Heritage Radio Network. Are you ready for the fastest half hour on the internet today? It's the Mike and Judy Show. Spanning the globe for high-minded hijinks and low-brow kicks to bring you the best in sex, drugs, rock and roll, and nuclear fission. They're too bad for radio and too good-looking for television. And now, here they are. To pluck the low-hanging fruit of the literati, your hosts, Mike Edison and Judy McGuire. Welcome to this week's Mike and Judy show. It is not Mike Edison this week. It's my friend Michael Gonzalez. Hello. Being our substitute Mike. Yes. City of, <laughs> city of Mikes. <coughs> Sorry. Um, anyway, Michael, welcome. Thank you. How do you feel sitting in Mike Edison's chair? Do you think you can fill it? I, I'm trying. I, I feel very... Um, hopefully Shy? by the end of the half hour, I'll get there. Have a little more beer. Yes. In the shower. (laughs) (laughs) Today we're welcoming um, two of my favorite artists, James Romberger and Marguerite Van Cook, because they're re-releasing the brilliant Seven Miles a Second that that David Wonorovich, a New York artist who sadly died of AIDS, um, wrote, and these guys did the artwork on it. Welcome. Oh, hi, Judy. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks for coming. Hi, Mike. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So... Why Seven Miles a Second was uh, released when in like eighty six? No, ninety six. God, we're old. <laughs> but ninety six, and why why re release it now? Well, I think that the issues that the book talks about haven't gone away. Uh, I mean, AIDS is still out there. It's it's got more uh, treatments available, but. Uh, it's still a problem. It's a problem all over the world, and uh, and David himself is still uh, a prominent individual, even though he's passed away. Uh, last year, there was a whole controversy involving the Smithsonian 
kicking a film of his out of an exhibition, which uh, was all over the newspapers and uh, strangely kind of represented weirdly. But uh, so, what was what was the film about? Why would the why would the Smithsonian do such a thing? <laughs> well, the uh, the film was about a trip he'd made to Mexico, and it showed a lot of very horrific imagery from his trip to Mexico, and it was intercut with. Uh, some sort of uh, messages about the effect of religion on the culture there and and how poverty isn't really dealt with in any kind of rational fashion. So mm-hmm. he, he'd actually destroyed the film, but what, there, what is in circulation now is that people have tried to reconstruct his original version, so... Who's in People took a lot of offense. There were ants crawling on a cross, amongst other things. As someone who went to Catholic school, I'm highly offended. Yeah. By that. yeah. I was an altar boy, but <laughs> I'm not offended. That didn't take. <laughs> you know, ants in your pants. <laughs> um, so the book, the Vanagraphics version, I just had the Vertigo version, which is um, paperback, graphic novel. Um, it it kind of got lost in the shuffle, even though, it, I mean, David Wernerovich has always been pretty famous. Like, what is the difference? Why should people buy the Fanographics version aside from the fact that it's incredibly beautiful? Uh, this version is really close, a lot closer to the way we envisioned it originally. It looks more like uh, what you would call a European album, which is a hardcover, slightly larger size. The work is uh, restored to the original watercolors rather than being uh, digital color, which had originally been it interpreted from Marguerite's color. Now you're seeing Marguerite's actual color. And, it's beautiful. Uh, there's pages that... Yeah, we're I, excited. We're excited to have it look how we intended it to look. Right. So was there... How did you um, channel David's color? I mean, David was also an artist besides being a writer, an activist, a musician, and like 50 million other things. How did you know... Did you feel good about the colors? How did you choose them? Do you feel like you've channeled him at all? Or Well, to some extent, I tried to channel him. Some, In some cases... I went to the place and looked at the colors. Mm-hmm. Like we were talking before about Nathan's, um, which actually was a really gad green and yellow, even though it looks like I just completely made up these insane colors. <laughs> That's Nathan's up on Times <laughs> yeah, Square. Yeah, on yeah. Times Square. And um, some of it I knew his palette because I used to use his paint because he used to buy this very cheap paint from Utrecht. They'll kill me for saying that. But it was, it was, a, it was a bargain. Brand, right. And, and so I knew how that worked. And then the other part of it, I just stayed up really late at night and uh, tried to imagine myself into some of these kind of really horrible scenes. Now, there was a story I read about the first version of this book. Bef- as you guys finished it, you you did a tarot reading, and he was saying, I'm sorry, I love this shit. <laughs> <laughs> James is laughing. Like, <laughs> one of my best friends is an astrologer. Just well, I sound a little me. crazy going, oh, well, I was... But... Um, in fact, I had this particular deck, a Kundalini deck, which is really a beautiful deck. And uh, I, so I was like playing with it. And these cards kept coming up, and there was like some really hot and heavy and some really crazy images, d- demons with their tongues out. And I said, oh my God, you know, this is just, re- I, this is David. I was like, uh, you know, I really got it really loud and clear, you know, it's like do this <laughs> do it now <laughs> and so you yelled at James to get yeah. back on it so I was like yeah we well, gotta do this <laughs> well certainly other people of David's friends uh, thought they saw him I, I know somebody told me they saw him up in a tree or in dreams and this and that I've I mean, seen maybe ghosts. it's wishful it's thinking like, but yeah. uh, 
I don't think that's so hard. I mean, he was a very strong presence alive, right? I mean, for my part, it's like I wasn't able to finish the book before he died, so I had to kind of finish the last part from his instruction, you know, vaguely from his instructions. But, uh... Tell us how you guys met him. I mean, you were all part of the East Village art scene in the 80s. Did you have a show together? You had a gallery, didn't you? Uh, At the time I met him, Marguerite had a rehearsal studio on Avenue A, and she said, oh, uh, go around the corner. I had, like, a few pastel drawings I kept in a rolled up, and she said, go around the corner to this new gallery, Civilian Warfare, and and show them your work. So I walked around, and there was this tall dude with... Like banging, <laughs> hacking away at a, uh, this sort of totem pole with thing. the hatchet on the street, of course, in these village and those. I think the show at the time was Greer Langton, this uh, a transsexual artist. Anyway, David was in the gallery working on his show, which was going to be the next one. And he, I said, "Oh, I have some work." And he goes, "Oh, well, uh, Dean's not here, but I'll look at it." So I unrolled these things. He's like, "Wow!" It's like you should come back when Dean's here. And he had this very rolling voice Uh oh my god this guy it's like it's like Robert Mitchum or something (laughs) it's like I never would have pegged him as gay in the first time when I met him because he had this kind of macho kind of thing right but uh, uh, over the over the next couple years I don't know we just hung out he came when we we actually took over that space the, the owner ended up giving it to us and then at some point David came in and and we, t- we asked him to do a show, and he was like... Uh, we, we got on very well with David, because essentially um, our motto was, go harder. So, you know, if you were an artist and you wanted to do something, push the boundaries, we were pretty much say, yeah, okay, that's good. Now now go push it a little harder. <laughs> <laughs> Not turn it, it into, like, precious moments figurines. <laughs> no. Well, we weren't concentrating on what would sell. We were more like we wanted the most intense thing you could possibly do. Because the East Village was a very different place back then. I mean, you could afford rent and not sell, you know, $1,000 paintings and stuff. Well, you'd like to, but yeah. <laughs> you, couldn't really, you weren't really counting on it. We lived in the back of the gallery, actually. So, I mean, it was kind of doing double duty. And we were artists ourselves. So, in a way, like, oh, if there was a show up, well, I mean, I didn't have a wall to work on. But uh, well, Can I ask you one thing? I mean, how did you get... DC involved with the book in the first place. I mean, DC being the home of Superman and Batman, it seems like something that they might shy away from being kind of a conservative company. Uh, I mean, at the time that that went through, they had Paradox and Vertigo was in its early stages, and and the book did sit on several desks. At, but I was assured that there's no way they would ever print it. Right. But meanwhile, uh, Jeanette Kahn, who ran DC at that time, was friends with people at Exit Art. And when I did a show of the originals at, at PPOW, when the book was originally finished, uh, Exit Art sent Jeanette Kahn down to PPOW to look at the artwork, and she went back to Vertigo and said, do it. Wow. Just do it exactly the way they want it. Nice. Because it's, it's so such a contrast from Superman. <laughs> I mean, I'll give them credit that <laughs> Vertigo that- did print this thing that is utterly unlike anything that DC ever in a million years would print. Yeah, definitely. But I don't think they really quite knew what to do with it. So. Well, that was the thing with comics back then. They were put in humor if they were graphic novels or, or 
just you know no there was store. no graphic i mean look at this way there was no this only went to com the original printing only in 1996 comics? only went to comic shops they never got to bookstores so. luckily comics fans are known as being really gay friendly and open-minded yeah it's kind of like it's a comic you can't even hide under your bed <laughs> yeah, if dad like, finds this you're really in there's nothing really to jerk off into <laughs> you find it with those pages stuck together <laughs> so so how is it um um James, you worked with um, Crosby on this new book, Post York, and you work with your wife. Like, how do you got? How do you two, especially, work together without killing each other? I mean, is it ever a problem? Do you compliment each actually other? Actually, we're ghosts. Okay. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> well, he has a few knife wounds on his back that yeah, you know exactly. we just cover for when he's in the. Pu- no, I mean, we get on pretty well. <laughs> well, we've done yeah. paintings together. We do comics together. You know, you just. All right, right now, actually, we're working on a book of Marguerite's childhood, and and you know she wrote it, but then I'm sitting there and doing my thing in the other room. Yeah. <laughs> like, but then she'll come back in, and we'll we'll, we'll talk it over. Yeah. The same way when I was doing the thing with Crosby, he came in and I consulted with him while I was working on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like to work with other people, but it's like in the case of this alternative comic situation, it's just you are actually it's only a few people working on it, and you're able to. To kind of have full, you know, final cut over the thing, and then the publisher is hopefully just uh, facilitating it coming out. It's not like you're you have these overseers when you're working in the corporate situation. So, I, how how did Fanographics approach? Did you approach them to re-release it? I mean, or and were they good editors? Did they what did they do? Did well, they- I had sent Eric Reynolds at Fanographics uh, some stories just because I had these stories kicking around. I sent him sent him one out of the blue, and he put it in the last issue of Mom. That was their their anthology. And then I was like, well, you know, I should probably send him the Seven Miles. I was like, I I don't know. I figured they'd seen it, but as it turns out, I sent it to him. He's like, oh yeah, this is great. And he showed it to Gary Groth and Kim Thompson. They're like, oh, uh, this is great. But they hadn't <laughs> actually seen it. I don't know how that's possible, but they hadn't. But uh, it didn't. It was really less than a year They've ago that really I sent great. it to them. I so. mean, they have been really great. You know, no, they have not put a hand on it in any kind of you know like n- negative way. There's been no fighting about. You know, James said, like "I want to put the discs yeah. back on the cover." They're like, "Okay, yeah. yeah, go for it. Yeah, make it exactly." You know, it was just like, "Oh my God, this is a blessing." You know? Yeah, there was actually not not a single bit of obstacle put in the way in any way at all. That's weird. Amazing. <laughs> Uncanny. I, that's just wrong. <laughs> not quite sure how they hadn't. I hadn't gone to them in the first place. That's kind of strange. Yeah, I mean, go ahead. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I just, I was curious because there's not a lot of comic book artists who are comic book artists as well as being fine artists. Um, you know, I guess with the exception of Kent Williams or maybe some of the newer artists these days, not too many people go into the museum or gallery world. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I thought I was going to be a comic artist. I didn't ever really set out to be a fine artist, but when we ended up running galleries in the East Village, uh, I kind of fell into that, of the idea of doing single pieces. I mean, Marguerite was certainly in the gallery. She was instrumental in the kind of thing where we did, we had artists do uh, uh, installations that were site-specific. And this isn't really my, my area of just, you know, conceptual art, but... I mean, I certainly didn't mind being collected by the Met. No. <laughs> <laughs> All this is yeah, completely he's just good. Un- <laughs> you know, he's just good, and he's you know he'll walk out and see something, and <clears throat> nine times out of ten, no, not even notes, just come back and just draw it, and you're just like, oh 
God, how did you do that? Yeah, I mean, if if anyone hasn't seen James Romberger's art, you have to you have to look it up. It's beautiful it's stuff, like pastels, like you've never seen them. I was looking at some of the um, Lower East Side scenes last night, and I don't know. They, what on Facebook? Or on Facebook? Like, yeah. Not not on Facebook. On just I in, just Google yeah, image, Google and all this stuff came up, and some of the you know night scenes on the Lower East Side are just took me back to a whole other yeah, time. Yeah, that, see, that's one of the places where, where we, we did have issues because pastels are very dirty. Oh, yeah. So when he's doing the daytime scenes, it's like light light dust in the house. Right. Doing the nighttime scenes, it's like black it's grime all over the house. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm kidding. Because they're spectacular. They're, they're so beautiful. But we're going to take a break, and we're going to hear, actually, the spawn of James and Marguerite do a song. What, what are we hearing? It's post-York, the song from... That it comes with the post York comic from Uncivilized, Uncivilized Books. Uh, it's Crosby, and it's a flexi disc that's attached to the book. But uh, this this is the song Post York by Crosby. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Buildings have survived intact. Um, the wave traveled Flooded my city, I dream it's coming to get me Each wave crashes down when it hits me But I'm not dreaming, don't pinch me Hydrants used to splash the curb Skyscrapers that have submerged Solid ground, it's fast to blur I'm walking on water, but that's absurd I never thought in a million years I get stuck in these buildings here Streets look right in the field with tears Get still, I'm here, feeling weird you watch from the rooftops, people carry me for two blocks I swear I need a new dock and a water Pure wash, I feel naked and alone But I make it on my own Will I sink or will I float? While I think I'm in this boat I give it my heart and all my soul All I have left now is this hope The world is a bottle of wine with no coke My big city of dreams, post your I can't sleep a peep, I feel so dead And every night that goes by I wonder when it will end My mom used to sing a lullaby to me in bed Now there's not a day that goes by It's not stuck in my head Can't get back. All these days that I can't get back. All these days that I can't get back. And 
seven, I can't keep track Every day is a day that I scratch If when I'm giving, I'm wishing it back The last one to laugh with a cascading crowd I scavenge and scratch just to add to my stash The city collapsed from a living attack I anchor my past, but there's nothing attached Just talk when I started to spark with a match Every scene rope and I hope it'll catch So mad that I handle my paddle like rap If it wasn't just flooded with nothing but crap Counting each life, what's a memo rat? Surviving alive is my vision to have I cast a last stone alone in the glass I'm bowing it home to kiss you the cat With James Romberger and Marguerite Van Cook, that is your son. Where, where do you think he got that musical talent from? Jeez, I thought it must have come from Marguerite <laughs> because I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> terrible. Plays. We've been in bands together, but you toured with the Clash. I, I did, I did, and uh, and I, I, it was a fantastic experience. We did uh, about thirty-six dates without stop, and then we came back and we played the Sid Vicious Benefit with them, and um, you know they were so great and. I have nothing but good things to say about The Clash. Um, and, you know, it was us, The Slits, and The Clash, which means there were more women on that tour than there were men. Which <laughs> Did is, your period sync up? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> was, was that when the, when, you, when the Clash played at Bonds and um, Grandmaster Flash well, and The Furious Five opened for them? We, were, this was, we toured with them in England. It was this, the Give Them Enough Rope tour. Okay. But I came to the Bonds gig. Yeah, and that was that was very cool. Yeah, I love Flash. I only heard too. about yeah, it. It was yeah. like one of those legendary shows. I went yeah. to two of those shows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I cut school to wait in line. Wow. But um, I was telling Marguerite during the break, like one of the highlights of my life was interviewing Joe Strummer because I was always a huge Clash fan. And I'm so happy. You have nothing bad to say about him. No, no. Are we, when we played The Music Machine, um, they were outside online making sure people got in. You know, Aww. and they were like people were trying to charge more for different things at different places, and they were like, "No, we're not letting you charge more." You know, we want our fan base to be, you know, taken care of. And when they went to see other bands, they always paid. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah, which is which means a lot at yes. that point. Yeah. yeah, you see people now like all these like rich famous people just want free stuff. It's like you can afford to buy stuff. <laughs> that's how they get rich is, uh, I know like God's paying for everything <laughs> This asshole here is buying stuff when, and, t- and tipping people actually. And tipping people <laughs> But um so, so when did you move to the US? Uh, I came right after that tour pretty much And then I played a little bit around New York And then um You know I, I felt like punk was kind of Done It was new wave <laughs> It was New Wave, and then there was Hardcore. And, and then, yeah. So, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to play in a reggae band now. <laughs> <laughs> so were you friendly with Ari Up? Yeah, yeah. I just, I actually, oh, boy, she died, and um, yeah. I, I sang at her uh, benefit, you know, her memorial benefit. Um, she was great. What a great girl, yeah. you know. We, our drummer left the stage once on tour, and she ran on the stage, sat on the drums, and just picked it up and started playing. <laughs> I, I, I have nothing bad to say about her either. She's so funny. So how was it like raising I mean it must have been Crosby must have had the best childhood having two two cool like artists musician artsy fartsy types as parents like on the lower <laughs> east side he was on the cover of a cop shoot cop record when he was little All right 
Um, and now he's a musician. I mean, I mean, I figured it might have convinced him not to be a visual artist because it's like a, such a good <laughs> yeah, way he's to start. Not taking but, uh, that to heart, he draws. No, know? but yeah, he's very good yeah, at he's montages. A, yeah, he's, he's got his own skills, and he makes movies, and he's doing uh, yeah. a lot of rock videos for people. And he's a filmmaker, so props to Crosby. So he didn't rebel and become a young Republican, or anything? No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> God, I, I just want to—I I just want to get a little geek boy for a second, Go for because it. James and I were having a little conversation earlier. We were talking about um, influences and friends, and you were talk, talking about Jim Steranko, and I was telling you about I was a fan of uh, Bernie Wrightson and Jeff Jones and those guys. Talk a little bit about reading comic books when you were a kid and, and just getting sucked into that world. And what made you want to actually do it professionally? Uh, maybe I could say that one of the things is is when you're looking at some of these great comic artists that to me one of the things was that I'd see that people do these kind of strange individual drawing ticks and they very much you know you know a lot of people now kind of do these very perfected styles but what I like is is these ones where somebody does like you know Kirby would do these kind of square fingers or something or Jim Steranko would do these, a lot of knobby knees or something right. and you go wow that's like a human drew this. It's it's almost like the mistakes make you feel like you could do it too. It's like, oh, these people aren't perfect. They're they're doing something that by hand. So to me, like when I look at a lot of stuff now, I, although I res- respect the effort in, I I just wished it looked a little more hand done. So for instance, like in Seven Miles a Second, I did the lettering. It's not digital, and I prefer the watercolor color as opposed to the digital plastic finish. I do like to see the human hand, and I think that's one of the attractions of it because you can see a lot of things that are very perfected technologically, but I, it's the value of the human doing it, I think, is important. But uh, what, was it, what was it like writing the end of the book without David being around? Did you feel... Was that torturous? Because, I mean, you don't want to get it wrong. I know you had... You uh, know, it was... Yeah, I mean... Uh, his his lover Tom Rothbard gave me access to his final diaries, so I had to kind of go through these, which is pretty pretty grim. But uh, I mean, I did find things that corresponded to our final uh, conversations. But uh, I was he he wanted it to end with this beautiful happy day where he's happy to be alive, and yeah. I couldn't find anything in his writing that would correspond with that. So he really just dies at the end. So you have this odd book that the writer actually dies in front of your face at the end of the book. But, uh, I mean, I think you were asked earlier, like, why would this book be put out now? And I think that one of the things that impresses people about David is his, the aggressive voice. His voice is out there talking about stuff. And when you have a situation now with the politics, you can call it like a partisan divide. But when you have people like the way that the, the 1%, for instance dominates everything and and has taken every penny it's like you need a voice to respond to that and losing david was a big loss because he's he was so honest and what we need is people to come out that are that honest and say things that directly i mean do you see anybody taking up that mantle not necessarily so i think that somebody will but uh yeah i mean i mean the the grassroots organizing sort of activism is does seem to be you know with occupy and stuff. yeah i think the occupy was important oh, we're thrilled. <laughs> i'm thrilled a bit so i was like yeah i mean it does seem like the media kind of downplays it as much as they can 
in a sense of whatever they call it, the liberal media. I, I don't really see it as being very liberal because they're really no. downplaying the Occupy as much as they could, it seemed to me. It's like when they call Obama liberal. It's like, yeah. <laughs> no, not liberal enough. I mean, whatever he wants to do, I think he's stymied by, even if he was trying to do something good, he's completely stymied yeah. by the people that are just, you know, gerrymandering their, their way into, you know, dominating whatever dialogue there is. So. One of the, I read Cynthia Carr's book, which was, you know, a brilliant biography of Bonarovich. Um, and there's, there's a great story about go, you guys with Carlo McCormick and David going to Virginia on some <laughs> road trip in a house. And there was like, they freaked out when you crazy New Yorkers got there. Could you guys, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Like, Okay. I mean, we certainly I went. Wish it was television. You know, we went, and, and 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 there's actually a new spread in the in the book that shows the you know from the point of view of being in the backseat of David's car. You know, he drove us to Virginia. We went there, and they hadn't really arranged a decent place for us to to stay. So we kind of like slept on the floor in this building, then went in and painted. You know, we painted directly on we the wall. We painted on this pristine gallery with pristine floors, and we just destroyed it. We, we tore it up. You know, there was us, uh, Keiko Bonk, who went on to become a, um, a congresswoman in Hawaii. Oh. <laughs> and uh, David West, who wrote, fuck you, fuck your mother, fuck you, dada, right around the whole room. In these little little, psychological. Like, yeah, uh, I mean, like trauma. Marilyn Minter, who's now right. very, done very well. So it was kind of like a complete free-for-all with rats and just all kinds of stuff crawling. <laughs> Did they preserve it at all? Well, I don't think. I think they came in and were absolutely horrified. They just had this beautiful wooden floor, and we hadn't really put adequate, you know. But Tarpage. they didn't provide us with anything. We just, you know, we just went in they there and did, did what they, we they normally did, would do, and, and here was this they, big mess. They had put four, four crates of beer in the middle of the room. That's all right, here's, like, here's the artist, just feed them beer or something. And, you <laughs> Not know, even refrigerated. Like, yeah, it was the 80s, though, right? <laughs> but they kind of thought we were like some sort of freak show and treated us like that. And, and well, you know, they didn't pr provide adequate protection for their gallery, so we just fucked it up Well, we were good. scared <laughs> going down there, too, because we were going down to Virginia, and, you know, it was like, oh, we're going to the South now. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, David was gay, and we were, you know... David like, and Louis, yeah. Yeah, we were looked pretty crazy. We were all, you know, in our still punk glory or whatever uh -huh. the hell we were doing. So it was a little nerve-wracking. I remember going in for a hamburger and being like, oh, my God, you know, we'll be making out of here alive. Oh, here's the people from New York City. <laughs> <laughs> it, was like, it was very... I drove across country with a gay friend of mine, and we went down through West Virginia, and we were just scared shitless because I, I had a nose ring, and he, he was gay, so he kept putting on sports memorabilia. <laughs> then he was worried that people would ask him about the sporting team, <laughs> so he switched to Olympic gear. There's a whole other world down south, though. You know, It's a little weird down here. I mean, I've lived in the south, so I can truthfully say that. <laughs> well, I just came back from New Orleans, and I went down to do the Fringe Festival with my girlfriend, Nessa Norwich, in a play, and it was great. I had a, They were so fantastic. But that's like a little so island uh, yeah. of crazy and <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not like really yeah, but there's like cool people like you know the butthole surfers in Texas or something no, there right. isn't you know no even the cracker states aren't completely oh, full of clowns <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> but you have to risk your life to get to them exactly. yeah, that's true anyway we're out of time I want to tell people Fan Fanagraphics is releasing 7 miles a second I think on Tuesday right well uh hmm. It's available in the Strand and Barnes & Noble It's available and in right some now. bookstores, and I guess early February in the comic shops. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, Gabe at 
Desert Island or whatever it's called. He should have some. He said Tuesday. Tuesday. Oh, good. Yeah. Yay. So, and you can order it on Amazon. And where can we find you and guys? You can online? get Post York at uh, from oh. postyork.com or uncivilizedbooks.com. Uh, Marguerite, where can we find you? Um, MarguerieFanCook.com. All right. <laughs> Do you have a website too, James? Uh, you can I'll just go to the Met that. and yeah. find him. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're pretty, we have a big footprint on the. You know. Yeah, go to Desert Island in Brooklyn. We like that place. Yeah, it's they're nice. Yeah. Michael Gonzalez, thank you so much for stepping into and and helping out this well, week. Thank you, Judy, for inviting me. And next week we're going to be here with John Holmstrom from Punk Magazine. Hey, up for John. Thank you. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.